Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, this is Dan Spoon, President of the American Council of the Blind. I just want to give a big hip, hip, hooray out there to our tremendous membership that does such a great job. As older adults with vision loss, we understand your fears, your frustrations, and feelings of isolation. The Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss is here to help you as you pursue the independent lifestyle you deserve. For more information, visit www.aaval-blind-seniors.org or call 916-995-3967 for more information. AAVL, a supporter of the ACB Media Network. Join me, Brian McCallan, on Speaking Out for the Blind. I interview blind newsmakers to inspire the population to go for their dreams. Speaking Out for the Blind airs Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern on ACB Media One. Welcome to Speaking Out for the Blind. I'm Brian McCallan. Georgina Cleage is a blind professor emeritus of the English Department of UC Berkeley. Georgina has taught creative writing, disability memoir, and representations of disability in literature courses. She's written essays about her own blindness and a cultural critique of depictions of blindness in language, film, and literature. Here to talk about her blindness and interest in English is Georgina herself. Hi, Georgina. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. How did you become blind? Um, I became, I was diagnosed as blind when I was 11. Um, so I, I don't remember, you know, it wasn't an accident. It was something genetic that, that came about. It must have happened pretty gradually because I don't remember any change in my, uh, uh, vision. Um, uh, so it was just that then I suddenly they had pronounced me legally blind and then, uh, that was about it. <laughs> What got you very interested in literature and writing? I think I was always interested in uh, reading and writing and books. And um, the story I always tell is when I was seven years old, it was I first occurred to me that books were written by people. They weren't, uh, you know, they didn't fall off the trees uh and that explained why some books were better than other books and so i figured well if people write books then that sounds like something i'd like to do and uh though when i was you know young i used you know i thought i wanted to do other things in addition to being a writer um but i think being a writer was always uh was always on my uh mind as how i wanted to live my life that was your calling but yeah. what challenges have you conquered in reading and writing blind? Well, you know, I'm I've been around a long time and um so I've been through a lot of different technologies. Uh when I became legally blind it was in the 1960s and um at the time um uh the orthodoxy was that braille uh was obsolete. And so there was no move to teach me Braille. Uh, the idea was that I could do fine with recorded books and magnification devices and all of this sort of stuff. 
Um, so that was basically how I functioned. Uh, you know, what's changed over the years is is the different kinds of technology that I use. I used to even I don't know, fifteen years ago, my desk used to be covered with different kinds of recorders and and CD players and other devices and all the wires and cables that you needed to connect to things. There's and like now, a small store filled with recorders. I know exactly. <laughs> and um, uh, you know, I recently moved, and I got rid of like all this antique technology um, because basically now everything is on my smartphone, uh, and that's been a real uh, liberation for me. It's like you know, I can read my emails, I can read books, I can you know, uh, uh, browse the web all on my smartphone. I don't the other junk that I used to have. Yeah, and the Internet's now really our true best friend. So you joined the English department at UC Berkeley, that's University of California, Berkeley, back in 2003. You teach creative writing classes. What sort of creative writing classes do you teach? I hear that one of them covers food writing. Um, I uh, For many years, I taught fiction writing, uh, so short stories. Um, and then I also teach, and, and I, I mainly ended up teaching um, nonfiction writing, so personal essays, uh, memoirs, uh, and, and other types of life writing. And uh, uh, one version of that class is a food writing class. So students were writing about food, but it was sort of as a, um, a vehicle to write about um, their families and their memories and uh, their likes and dislikes and so on and so forth. So that the, the topic was always more or less around food, um, uh, but it was also about uh, people writing about their own experiences. Yeah, and you've taught classes on representations of disability in literature and even disability memoir. Mm-hmm. What's your teaching style as a college professor? being blind and teaching a college class? Um, well, it varies. The writing classes that I, t- uh, that I taught were small. You know, they were sort of limited enrollment to like 15 students or fewer. And in those situations, you know, you're sitting around a table. And I was, you know, I've always been pretty good at recognizing voices. So within a week or two, I could recognize everybody's voice in the room. Um, and, you know, those classes are kind of conducted in a seminar uh, style, you know, so that people, uh, you know, I talk a little bit and then other people talk and, and I, I basically act, act as a traffic cop uh, <laughs> to make sure everybody's, um, you know, uh, able to speak up. So the ones who are more adept at speaking don't overtake the conversation. Right. Um, in my disability and literature class or my disability memoir class, those are much bigger classes. So they're more like a lecture, a lecture hall. Um, and, but I've never felt really comfortable just standing and talking for an hour. Um, so I try to break it up with, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say things for 10 minutes and then I'll, um, ask, ask questions, uh, get people to comment on what I've said. Um, you know, I, in, in those classes, I use PowerPoint, uh, even though PowerPoint is not accessible to me, but I use it mainly so that there's something on the screen, uh, behind me that everybody can look at. 
Uh, so for instance, in the literature class, you know, there may be a, a, a passage, a quotation from the text or a poem or uh, something else. And then um, I may ask people in the class to read it out loud and then uh, people to, to uh, comment on what, what's, what's there. Um, so I, you know, I, I like to be interactive because it's more interesting to me and I think it's more engaging to students. Well, let's talk about your written works. You've written a whole collection of personal essays called Sight Unseen. Talk more about Sight Unseen. Well, Sight Unseen um, was really the first book that I wrote about uh, blindness, about my own blindness. Um, but I wasn't really interested in writing. When I first decided that I was going to write about blindness, you know, I read around and, and tried to see what was out there. And um, I didn't really want to write a, a, a narrative about my triumph over adversity because that wasn't really my experience. Um, <clears throat> so instead of writing a straight up uh, autobiography, you know, starting with my childhood and going into adulthood, it's broken up into different chapters and some of them are really very little about me. So I have some chapters about uh, blind people in movies and uh, blind people in um, literature. And then I have some chapters about, uh, which are more directly about me. For instance, um, uh, I grew up as the the daughter of two visual artists. And I theorize that a lot of what I understand about the visible world comes from being around people who were highly visual um, so I wrote about that. Um, I wrote about the experience of teaching myself Braille as an adult, uh, which I was very happy that I did. And I also wrote about um, oral reading, uh, what it means to and what it meant to me to be, you know, somebody who reads primarily with my ears, uh, because that was the uh, technology that was available to me. So they're just those are some of the some of the things that I cover in that book. Hmm. Um, did you talk about any sort of orientation mobility experience? I know one of the things we got to learn as blind and visually impaired people is how to cross streets, how to navigate our world. Yeah, I did. I never took a formal O and M training. Um, I learned actually from talking to other blind people and saying, "What are you doing now? Why are you doing that?" Um, and, uh, you know, I grew up in New York City, and which in some ways is a very intimidating environment for a blind person. But in other ways, yeah. it's very, it's, it's actually pretty easy to navigate once you get the, get some certain rules down, uh, that you know which way the traffic is going to go. Um, and also conveniently, there's a, there's a traffic light at every single, you know, corner, um, which is not true in a lot of, a lot of America. So you can always count on, okay, I can stand here and the light is going to change and then it will be safe for me to cross this way. Um, uh, so, um, you know, I have a pretty good sense of direction. I have a pretty good memory for um, spatial, you know, like if you if you show me the way to get set somewhere once, I can usually remember it. Um, so that's a part of or orientation also. Several essays in your book, Sight Unseen, they're required reading in disability studies classes, correct? Um, yeah, apparently, yeah. Could you give some sort of examples of that? 
Um, well, you know, I think a lot of disability studies classes, uh, you know, there are, there are introductions to disability studies. And I think because my writing is, um, does have a personal element, um, I think, uh, students find it, you know, more, um, personable than sometimes straight up academic writing. But it's still, um, I, I'm still trying to make a, a a point that's that's not just about me. It's about uh, you know barriers in the culture, or it's about stereoty- stereotypes and myths about blindness. Um, so I can kind of make those points while also uh, sounding less academic. You also write about uh, Helen Keller. In a uh, book called Blind Rage, Blind Rage, Letters to Helen Keller. That story cuts across the boundaries between fiction and nonfiction to reimagine the legacy and life of Helen Keller. How'd you write that story? Well, like a lot of disabled people, I had a certain, um, I found Helen Keller to be a kind of problematic figure. Because uh, she was always held up as this inspirational um, icon, and uh, you know how how can anybody else measure up to that? So when I was a child, I was extremely resentful. Um, and then as an adult, you know, I sort of mellowed about it, and I thought, well, you know, she can't really be held responsible for um, the uses that other people make of her life story. Um. And so I started to to read more of her of her writing and to read more about her to know more about her story than just the the story that we know from the miracle worker about how she acquired language. And I wrote the book as a series of letters um because when you investigate some of that time period a lot of what you're reading are letters and uh people saved Helen Keller's letters because she was a famous person but you don't always have the the um the letter from the other person so it's a kind of one-sided communication and so i wanted to kind of duplicate that in the book so that there are letters from me to Helen Keller um and i do acknowledge that i know that Helen Keller is dead so i'm not really expecting a response but I wanted to write about it in that way because I wanted to convey a sort of process of coming to terms with my own coming to terms with Helen Keller and my own understanding about the way she lived her life and how, uh, given the time period when she grew up and when she was an adult, uh, you know, she didn't have as many options as someone like I have. Um, and so it's both autobiographical about me but it's also biographical about her um you know it's very fact-based but it's speculative i mean i don't you know i'm I'm sort of uh trying to imagine what may have been going through through her mind at various points so i think it it, I, i wanted to make it clear to the reader that this was my version of of helen keller i wasn't claiming it as a definitive um a biography of her. Now, your latest book called More Than Meets the Eye, What Blindness Brings to Art, talks about both blindness and art. Much more specifically, 
how blindness affects the lives of visual artists, how the museums make the art accessible for blind and visually impaired visitors, and how blindness is represented in art. Tell us more about the book. Well, as I said, uh, when I was talking about uh, my book, Sight Unseen, uh, you know, I grew up, my parents were visual artists. I kind of grew up in the art world um, with, you know, without necessarily seeking it out. Um, and so I wanted to write more about that. And, and because I had written about that in that earlier book, I started to get invitations to speak to um, museums, art museums around the world. Uh, about accessibility. And initially, I mean, this was 20 years ago when this started, uh, you know, I, uh, what I would find when I went to art museums was the, the programming that they had, uh, I felt was kind of based on a kind of reductive understanding of what blind people can conceptualize and know and understand. And so I wanted to kind of critique that and investigate that and suggest uh, ways that things could be done better. Um, so I talk about access in art museums. I also talk about audio description in, um, you know, films, uh, to television and media. Um, and then I also wanted to highlight the work of some blind and visually impaired visual artists that I've encountered Um uh, there are a fair number around the world if you just look around. Um, uh, and so I want to just describe their work. And in some instances, I did some interviews with people just to understand how they came to um, uh, be artists. So again, it's it's kind of a collection of essays. So there's a, a, a wide range of topics there. You've also served as and just lectured as a consultant to art institutions around the globe including the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And you've also received two distinguished teaching awards, one in 2013 from the Division of Arts and Humanities, another one in 2016 from the entire UC Berkeley campus. Talk real quickly about these special activities. Um, well, the, the, when I lecture and, and, uh, work at museums, it's kind of just an extension. I mean, now that this book has come out, I'm getting more requests for that. Um, so it interests me to work, uh, with museums and kind of help them improve their services. Um, the teaching awards were really a great honor. I, I love to teach. I, I work very hard at it. So it was really very, you know, it was humbling and very gratifying to receive that. Uh, that recognition. So I was very happy when, when I got those two prizes. Now you're back in New York, and you're going to join New York University NYU Steinhardt as one of the 2022 to 2023 deans, scholars, and residents. What, what are you going to be doing in this role? Um, well, it's just started, so I uh, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but I think I'm going to continue work that I've, you know, at, at the New York City Museums. I have a lot of contacts here that I want to re-establish and uh, work with the big art, art institutions. I'm also interested, you know, New York is home to many, many smaller arts institutions, galleries, uh, performance venues. Yep. 
where people are are interested in access, they recognize that there's more that they could be doing, but they typically don't have the staff or the resources um, like the, the bigger institutions do. So it feels like a good a good opportunity to team up, you know, to put NYU students and faculty in collaboration with those those organizations. Um, so I was talking yesterday with the the dean at Steinhardt about what if we had some kind of internship program for students, give them some training, and then set, make them available to these uh, smaller places where they could go in and work on, you know, how to create an accessible website for your program and how to uh, write good alt text and how to write good image description for an exhibit. Um, How would you go about doing audio description of a a video presentation or a live performance and those sorts of things? Uh, So the students would get, you know, would benefit from that experience. The art institutions would benefit because they'd be getting uh, you know, these services for, you know, low cost. And it just, it seems like something that I could, I could uh, contribute to, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. How might our listeners check out your books? Um, I believe, uh, yeah, I think all my books are available uh, at the NLS um, uh, 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 library service. Um, and also I think, I think they're all now up on on Bookshare. So those are two sources where people uh, can can find um, the books. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I'm just uh, thank you for the opportunity and thank you for your questions. And um, uh, it's been great appearing on your show. Yeah, it was great having you here, Georgina, and thank you so much for coming on the show today and just speaking out about how literature represents the blind and visually impaired community. You're an inspiration to us all. Thank you. You're welcome. Before we go, listeners, I welcome your comments on this program. Just visit and like me on Facebook at Speaking Out for the Blind or follow me on Twitter at Speak Out Blind or Speak Out for the Blind. You can also check out my website at speakingoutfortheblind.weebly.com. More information on today's show is posted there. Just look under list of episodes and show news tab. And my show archive is at speaking-out-for-blind.pinecast.co. That's all for this edition of Speaking Out for the Blind. Thanks for listening. And remember to speak out. I'm Marie Osmond. Choices. Some are minor, others life-changing. But what if your small choices matter the most, like the stairs or the elevator, baked or fried? What if these small choices determine if you'll be the one out of every three women who die of heart disease this year? These choices might not seem life-changing today, but women are dying of heart disease at the rate of almost one per minute. Luckily, it's mostly preventable. Choose to act. Our hearts, our choice. Make your choice at GoRedForWomen.org. You are listening to ACB Media One, also known as Mainstream, the flagship of the ACB Media Network. The ACB Media Network is a service of the American Council of the Blind. Please visit us at acbradio.org.